Amen, amen. So good to worship the Lord with you this morning. As we get ready for this morning's message, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, we cry out to you. You are a good God, that you love us. Father, that we would understand the love of your son, Jesus Christ, that has been poured out on the cross for us. God, that you're crazy about us, that we would understand that you, you feel that we are precious in your sight. So Lord, may you be honored by our worship of you. May we give you our best. We want to sing to you, Lord. We want to worship you. Thank you for your word that straightens us and strengthens us, Lord, and keeps us on the path of, of righteousness, Lord. We want more of you and less of us. That's what we ask for. So, Father, as a new year begins, make us more intentional in, in the, the ways that we grow. May we, we grow in your word and grow in our times of fellowship, but grow in our prayer lives that we would plead to you a good and holy God that wants to do a mighty work in this country, in this nation, in our community. Use us, this church, to be a light for Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. We're going to be in Judges. Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament. Just start from the beginning. Go over seven books and you'll find Judges there. We're going to be there for quite a while. We'll get to look at it for a number of weeks here. So I want you to get familiar with it. Um, I want you to know um, our family, about uh, maybe four or five years ago, had the chance to go to Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C. is just an amazing place of, you know, history, and there's a lot of museums and um, uh, just interesting places of our, our founding fathers. And so we got to spend some time in the Aerospace Museum and, you know, just seeing those, you know, astro you know the, the space shuttles and walking through there. It's incredible. It's amazing. And it's, I don't know if you like museums, but it's really fascinating, all of that stuff. So the book of Judges, I want you to know, is kind of like a museum of Israel's spiritual history history, okay? Particularly the first and second chapters that we're going to look at today. And in them, you're going to see a snapshot of Israel's rocky history with God. And sometimes you're going to see it go up, and sometimes they're down, sometimes they're hot, sometimes they're cold, sometimes they're usually just lukewarm, but there are certain temptations that they were addressing that they just didn't seem like they could shake them. And here, I want you to know that that's where a lot of us can relate to this today. I don't know if you ever ask yourself, oh God, why am I so up and down in my spiritual life? Why does it seem like there's some days where I'm just like on fire, I'm praising the Lord, I'm praying like never before, and there's some days where I doubt and it's like I don't even know if I'm holding on to my faith. And if some of it, you know, you ever wonder why some people have incredible joy in the spiritually? And you're like, man, those people are just spiritually joyful all the time. And I'm just, you know, not that way. And I struggle with it. And so maybe you find yourself there. And maybe some of you find yourself with some sins that you've been trying to shake. You've been trying to push off. You just can't seem to get rid of them. Well, I think that we're going to see their struggle in these first two chapters specifically. And we're going to see ours in that same struggle. And that's what I want to kind of see today. Out of this struggle that we're going to see, I want, we're going to draw three conclusions, three principles that we're going to see play out in the rest of the book. So if you have Judges, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. You can follow along on the screens if you want to as well. This is how the book opens. It says, after the death of Joshua, 
And hopefully you remember Joshua. Joshua had been a mighty warrior general, okay, who had seen, uh, you know, he had conquered and led the children of, uh, of Israel into Canaan, okay, and there he saw many great victories. They had just seen, they marched around Jericho, remember, and the walls come tumbling down. But Joshua died, okay? And there were still parts of Canaan that needed to be conquered. And so he says, now the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who's going to take over? Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And things start out very good. If you go to verse 4, you'll see, then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Basak. Okay, so it's going pretty good. They defeated 10,000 of them. And then go to verse 6. We're going to kind of keep moving on. It says, Adonai Bezak, which is literally, I want you to know, means uh, in Hebrew would have been the king of Bezak, fled. But they pursued him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes, because that's what you do, okay? And Adonai Bezak said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Okay, so I'm going to dive off just for a second and kind of cover some things. One of the problems that people sometimes have with the book of Judges, they ask, how could God send Israel to conquer another people, okay? How could he do that? But the thing I want you to start with is look at that question in response from King uh, Adonai Bezak. This is what he says. He doesn't say, God, that's so unfair. How could you do that? No, he says, basically, you know what? God has repaid me for my wickedness. So look, if you went back to Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 18, you, God makes it very clear that Israel has been, that's driving Canaanites out is because of their excessive wickedness, okay? Israel was his instrument of judgment. These were not innocent people that were, they were stealing the land from. They were cruel and wicked people that God was bringing judgment upon. And Israel was his instrument of judgment in doing so. So now, you know, that sounds like probably to a lot of us, well, that's pretty dangerous. You know, if God would just tell someone to go take someone out. I want you to be clear that this isn't how God works anymore, okay? With the coming of Jesus, God began a new way of working in this world. Jesus came on a saving mission. And those of us that follow Jesus, follow Christ, are also on this saving mission. He didn't take life, he laid down his life. And so now, following him, that's what we do. We give mercy and grace. We are not dispensing his justice. But I do want you to know, one day, friend, King Jesus will bring justice to the world. And, but that is not our role. We are right now dispensing mercy and grace. But there's another question that you might be struggling with. When this judgment occurs, is there some innocent people that get affected? And I want to answer that as absolutely yes, there are some. And it's true. Innocent people sometimes get caught up in judgment. I just want us to kind of wrestle with this a little bit. That doesn't mean that it's not happening today. Okay, there are innocent people that get affected by sin today as well. Let's say, just a random example, someone goes and steals, uh, a parent goes and uh, steals money from a bank. Well, they get put away in prison for many years. 
their kids didn't do anything with it. But now that parent may be gone. They may suffer financially. They may be picked on, difficulty. So yes, this does happen, and there is suffering. But here, in the Bible answers this question a bunch of different ways, but I want to give you one of them. One thing I want you to be assured of is that before the throne of God, everyone will receive full and complete and perfect justice. Every one of us, okay? And the thing is, is what you inherit in eternity, I want you to know, will make up for anything that you seem to feel like you missed out upon here on earth that felt trivial. The only way I can really kind of help you get this, it's not a perfect analogy, but think about this. You went to buy a stamp at the post office, okay? You give them your dollar, and a stamp is really expensive, so they forget to give you back your 35 cents or whatever it is. Okay, so you got cheated out of it. You went away and you're like, wait a second, they didn't give me my 35 cents. So you went back and you said, you know what? You didn't give me my 35 cents for that stamp. And they said, you know what? You're right. I am so sorry. On behalf of the U.S. government, we are going to not ever allow you to, you don't have to pay taxes from this day forward. And don't try this, okay? It's not going to happen. Don't try it. But let's say, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking, hmm, I don't think I'm going to complain about that 35 cents anymore, right? Because you're thinking about the thousands and thousands that you've got saved. And that's kind of what it's going to be like for us. It will be so incredible. And yes, some do suffer, even unfairly in judgment. But rest assured that before the throne of God, they will receive perfect justice. Every one of us will. And so I know it doesn't answer it fully, but it helps give you a place to kind of dive in with some of those questions. So let's get back to this story. If you go back to verse 19 of Judges chapter 1, this is what it says. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Well, that seems to make sense, right? They have chariots of iron. Chariots of iron were like tanks today, okay? So these chariots of iron um, could, just a few of them could mow down hundreds and hundreds of foot soldiers, and that's all that Israel had. So they're saying, hey, that's why we couldn't drive them out, Israel's kind of saying. Go to verse 27 now, and then it says, and in Manasseh, they didn't drive out the inhabitants of Bashin and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or Dor and its villages, all these cities and their villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. Here's what happens. These people are really, really difficult, okay? Israel asked them, hey, you should leave. They asked them nice, and then they didn't get out, so then they started talking tough. Hey, you guys are jerks. Get out of here. Take a, take a hike. And then that didn't work, so they mounted a few attacks. That worked a little bit, but these people were so stubborn, they stayed, so they eventually said, okay, we're not going to bother you anymore. You don't bother us. We'll kind of let you be. You let us be, and they'll just live together. Then in verse 28, continue on, it says, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. Well, this made sense. You know what? If you're going to be here and we're going to leave each other alone, hey, why don't you work for us? Let's at least get some dishes and some meals made. So they put them into forced labor. Now, there was a commentary that I read on this about um, the book of Judges from Tim Keller. I thought it was really interesting. He said this about chapter one. It was kind of fascinating. He said, 
this whole chapter kind of reads like a collection of Israel's press releases about their campaign and how they put their spin on why they weren't successful like we thought they should and like God thought they should. And then all of a sudden, because we're reading all their reasons, we get lulled into a sympathy with the Israelites. When they told us they could not drive out the Canaanites, we're inclined to agree and say, well, you know what? They did their best. Clearly, they did their best. And they even found this economical you know, solution to boot. They, they said, we got free labor out of it. So it all kind of worked out. But then, you know, here's God's response. That's not God's response. That's how we start to feel. Well, they tried. They really tried. Look at God's response in chapter 2. Go to chapter 2, verse 2. This is God. He says, you have not obeyed my voice. Period. He says, you didn't obey my voice. Look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers, yet you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be snares to you. So some of the things I want to illuminate from this passage today, the first thing I want you to see is small areas of disbelief produce large disaster in our life. Just little disbeliefs, just little things that produce this disaster. These Canaanites then, you know, became a thorn in Israelite's side and a source of constant warfare. And eventually some of the people would kind of let down their guard and the Philistines would rise up and overthrow them and rule them. And Israel said, but God, I can't drive them out. God, I, we've tried. I can't drive them out. But that's not God. God says, actually, you know what? It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. It has nothing to do with you not being strong enough, and it has everything to do with you not being confident enough in who I am and in God's grace, okay? So here's the question maybe you should ask, we can ask of ourselves today. Where are the areas that you are saying, you know what, I can't, God. I can't give that up. I, I can't walk away from that. I can't, but actually God's saying, you know what, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. And you need to look at those areas in your life as kind of like those unconquered lands of Canaan, okay? Lurking in the crevices of our heart are little areas, are little sins that we just say, you know what, I can't. I can't walk away from this. I can't do this. And God's just saying, you know what, you won't. Maybe some of those areas for you, maybe this is a list that was kind of familiar to me in some of the areas that I've struggled with, you know, integrity. And you think, what, you know, Wait a second, I can't, God. You know, if I was to play on a level playing field, you know, people wouldn't know how good I am and I wouldn't have an advantage over them. You know, areas of integrity, is that something that maybe is an issue for you? You're saying, I can't, I can't. And God's saying, no, it's just you won't. How about extending forgiveness? You ever felt like there's someone you know you need to forgive and you know you're supposed to forgive them, but you're like, God, I can't, I, I started to write that letter and there was, you know, I had no stamps that day. And, or I, I wrote an email, but then, you know, I, I hit delete or, or there's no Wi-Fi that day. And you're just like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And, and God's saying, no, is it, you can't or you won't. How about avoiding temptations? You know, and you think, I know it's wrong, I know it's wrong. But then all of a sudden you start to get more uncomfortable. You get more comfortable with those temptations. You're like, and then we start to bend scripture to really fit who we are. And that's what we do. And for some of us also, it, 
comes with financial, you know, kind of uh, faithfulness. You know, uh, God, you know my bills. You know all the bills that I'm facing right now. How could I give to that person? I see the need. I, yes, I know, Lord, but I, there's no way. I, I, you know my future. I've got to, you know, look to that. And, and God's just saying, are you saying I can't? Or are you really should you be saying, I won't? And these are some areas that a lot of us feel defeated in. Okay? And, and it's not that we can't. It's truly that, you know, we won't. Because God absolutely has the ability, if we're confident enough and trust in him enough, then he can do it by his strength in our lives. So I want you to know, Israel never stopped being zealous in their religious faith. Okay? They were still excited about following the Lord. But here's what the deal is. They had ceased to walk by faith. And there is a huge difference between the two. The marks that you are walking by faith are complete and total surrender. Complete and total obedience to the Lord. And there's two ways to approach it. One way you can try to kind of do your own thing and then also use the Lord as a safety net. So I'm going to do it my way, but also keep the Lord happy enough to kind of do it you know, as a safety net. And the other way to do it is just complete total control. I'm giving you total control of my life. You direct me, I will follow you. You say give, I will get. You say move, I will do. You know, that's what we're talking about here. To kind of help you grasp this a little bit, and, and I may have used this example before, but I think about this time. I was a youth pastor for many years up in Kansas City, and a lot of times we would take our kids on trips to Colorado. And um, it's a wonderful place. We would do whitewater rafting through Noah's Ark. It's an incredible place near Browns Canyon and Buena Vista, and a beautiful place. So the other thing we would do to kind of challenge them, get out of their self and, you know, look a little bit, build up some trust and confidence, we would go hiking and rappelling. Well, there's this place called Bob's Rock, okay? You can go up there, you can find it in Buena Vista. And um, you would hike up on the side, and you do hiking back and forth, and then you would end up, after an hour or so, at the top of this big, big rock, Bob's Rock. And there's about 75, 80-foot drop off the end. Well, by the time you got up there, they would have all these ropes hanging off it and all these belay systems, and then you're like, okay, that's how we're getting down. Okay, and you got to tell you, uh, unfortunately, you know, being the, the youth pastor at the time, that means I've got to be the confident one and show them how to do this, right? And I'll tell you, I'm scared to death of heights, but I looked over that edge, oh yeah, no problem, you know, and I hook on and you, get, you say, belay, belay on, and all this stuff, and then they tell you, lean back. Lean back? Are you kidding me? Lean back. No, lean back. I'm like, so I, you know, lean to you like an inch or two. I'm like, we good? We good? Right? And they're like, no, you have to lay down like you're laying flat on the ground, like you're parallel with the ground. I'm like, oh man, of course I can do this. No problem, right? Because you got to be tough. So I lean back and I'm flat against the wall. And then they say, okay, now let go of the rope and jump. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And my, I think my jump was like an inch. You know, and I was sitting there like, did you jump? I'm like, yes, I jumped. Did you not see that? I put everything into that. That's all I had. And so, of course, I jumped. So the first couple of like little minor jumps and I'm going down. And eventually, you kind of jump a couple feet and then you get a little more excited and you're like, okay, this is okay. So then the next person that was to go, okay, was this, um, this kind of brave kid in the youth group. 
Well, I look up there and his knees are just shaking. His legs is just, I mean, it's just jello up there. And they take him forever to strap in and get on. And, and then all of a sudden they say, okay, now lay back. And he's like, uh-uh, I ain't laying back. So what he does is he kind of leans like I did at first. And then he puts one foot over the edge and feels back, finds a foothold. He puts another one back and kind of finds another foothold. And he's going down like that. And that's all good for the first about 12 feet. But what happens if you ever go to Bob's Rock, it inverts, okay? So the rock comes back in, and so there's no one that can hold on with the weight of their body all the way down underneath the inversion of that rock. So at that point, he has to let go, and he has to go down. And that's what we're talking about, you know, when we talk about trusting, you know, will I or can't I? I can't do it. I can't do it. Or won't you? And that's what we're talking about, releasing full control and trusting that God's going to be the one that takes care of your finances, your relationships, your future. You're trusting him with all of that. And Israel's compromise started with a failure of belief. And all sin starts with a failure of belief. It's just a little part of our heart where we're just kind of doubting the Lord. And what happens is that ends up in a large disaster. And that will in our lives as well. Again, I want to encourage you, start seeing your life like an unconquered promised land of Canaan. And lurking in it, these little crevices of maybe unbelief. And you've got to have gospel, the gospel, go deep into those areas to trust in the Lord. And then, you know, you can take care of your worries and your, your goals and your temptations and your security. And you're trusting the Lord with every part of that in your heart. That's what it looks like. Well, for them, it gets worse, okay? Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 12 is where we're at now. After the people of Israel abandoned the Lord, their God, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, because that's what plunderers do. They plunder. Okay, so that's what happened. Israel started to go after the gods of people around them. And then they took control of them. They enslaved them. They ruled them. So here's point number two this morning I want you to see. We choose between the God who saves and gods who enslave us. Okay? And you, why do we give ourselves over to idols? Because idols promise power and freedom. That's what they promise. The definition of an idol is basically anything that promises power and freedom and happiness apart from God, without God. And that's what put them in chains. For us, what promises you know, power and freedom? For a lot of us, it's money, right? We will go after it. We will take, you know, we want it because then I'll be free. Then I'll have enough. But here's the thing about money, you will never have enough. And it destroys you. It starts to take your time and your health and your integrity, and you're never satisfied. That's not freedom. That's not, you know, that's one of the gods that we kind of give into. Another one is our reputation. We think, oh man, if I build my reputation, then I'm set and we'll be good and I'll have power and I'll have freedom from it. But the opposite happens. You start to go after it so much that you become sensitive to everybody's little critique of you. 
and you obsess about what other people think of you, and you're always frustrated that people aren't recognizing how invaluable you really are. And so that's what we see. You know, we go after these things that promise, but in contrast to these false gods that enslaved them, Judges gives us a glimpse into the heart of God for his people. And this is what it says in verse 14 and 16 again. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunders, and they were in terrible distress. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the land of those who plundered them. Three things really quick I want to give you about God and how he sees us, his, his children. This is the first one. The first thing to note is it made him angry. I want you to be real clear about this. God is righteously angry. God is a jealous God. And he is jealously angry over our betrayed heart, our heart that wanders. And I want you to know, um, sometimes we, we think jealousy is always a bad thing, right? It's just when we want something that somebody else has. So it's got to be a bad thing. Well, I want you to know that there's also good jealousy, a jealousy that's actually natural and a part of love. Because I want you to know, I am righteously jealous about my kids, okay? I, I, I'm jealous. I want them so badly to learn to love the right things, and every parent I know thinks aloud about the influences on their kids. And they want their kids to grow up knowing what is right. And that's a good kind of jealousy. I'm also jealous for my wife's attention, right? I want her attention to be centered on me and not centered on someone else. Because one, it's good for her. And two, it's also good for me. And that's how it's intended. God is a jealous God. And he wants to be the only God that we love and we surrender to. He wants to be the real object of our worship. That's what he longs to be. So first thing is he's angry. And I want you to know, anger is, um, some people think the opposite of love is anger. The opposite of love is actually apathy, okay? That's when somebody doesn't care. Ah, no big deal. This is a God that's crazy and passionately in love with you, okay? Therefore, he was angry, the second thing he feels is pity. In verse 18, if you look at it in chapter 2, it says this, the Lord was moved to pity because of their groaning. Their groaning here is like they're just crying out in misery. They're not actually changing something. They're just complaining about things and how they are. And he's moved to misery. I love that God is emotionally invested in us and that he hurts when he sees suffering on his children. And I got to tell you, it's just like me. When, when, when my kids are in pain, I hurt for them, right? Even when it's their fault and even when they're not sorry for it, I almost hurt for them even more, right? And that's what God does. So he shows pity for them. And the final thing he does is in verse 16, he has an act of salvation. And that's where he raises up judges to deliver them. And that's the rest of what we're going to discover. But I want you to know, here's the dilemma. The dilemma is that these judges turn out to be broken people themselves, right? You know, they're the same pro they have the same problem that Israel has. They're inconsistent. They're unbelieving. They're cowards. They're greedy. They're, they have rash judgment. So the question that emerges from the book of Judges is, 
How can these men and women be Israel's Savior when they themselves need to be saved? I, I don't know if you get this, but the, the person, a couple um, months ago over the summer, there was this really sad story. It was really, uh, this family was visiting out in Myrtle Beach area, and um, they were just kind of walking along the shores, and this really big tide came in, and it had a really strong rip current. One of their kids fell down in the water. And the dad just instinctively, even though he couldn't swim, jumped in after his child. And sadly, a couple hours afterwards, they had to pull out both of them that had passed away. Because the thing is, is the one that is trying to save can't struggle with the same thing you struggle with. And that's the same thing that these judges, they struggled with the same thing the people struggled with. So that can't really be the Savior that we're talking about. We're going to be talking about a Savior that is, that is, that is real for us and has given us everything. And that's the judge that we're going to be, isn't written about in the book of Judges that we'll be talking about that went to the cross for you and I. One more thing I want to point out here is some, a possible inconsistency that I want to address. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 15. You can look at these a little bit later, but there's, it's almost a contradictory statement. And it says here in verse 1, I swore to give you this land to your fathers, and I will never break my covenant with you. That's what he says. I, I swore I'm going to give you this land and I'm you know, never going to break my covenant. But then verse 15 says, I have sworn, basically it's kind of reworded, but I have sworn to punish injustice and sin because I am a just and righteous God. So how can both of those promises hold up? The answer is that God is going to send a judge that's going to deliver us from our enemies and pay the price for our disobedience. And throughout this passage, he keeps referring in Judges to this covenant that God made with Israel. So real quickly, I'm going to take you back to this first place this covenant was made with Israel and show you something kind of fascinating. If you want to go back later today, Genesis chapter 15, God promises in this, this is the first covenant with the people of Israel. God promises Abraham, I will bless you. And you will be the father of many nations, and I'll give you descendants, and you will be my people forever, in Genesis chapter 15. They were going to officialize that covenant that, they, that God made with them through an ancient ceremony called the cleaving of the animals. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is kind of gross by our standards, but this is what this ceremony did. They took about five animals, and they would cut them in half. And then they would kind of find a valley or a hillside, and they would put half of the animal on each side so that the blood would drain down the middle, and there would be like this river or path of blood. Then somebody in the, that would make that covenant, like in, in their wedding ceremony, they'd be wearing these white cloaks, and they would walk through it, and the blood would splash up on them as a reminder of what would take place if they broke that covenant. And when it came time for Abraham and God to walk through that blood, Abraham, it says, fell into a deep sleep. And that didn't stop God from going through it alone. He walked through that alone. And he was saying, basically, I will keep both sides of this covenant. So not only will I spill my blood if I fail, but I will spill my blood if you fail as well. And that was a covenant God made all by himself. Okay, and covered all by himself. 
So commentators said that when he fell into a sleep, Abraham did, that deep sleep, it kind of prefigures this darkness of sin and slavery that we've brought upon ourselves. So God, I want you to know, this is what he's saying. I have set my love on you. God's saying, I'll pay the price for your disobedience. And he says, I'll pursue you even when you're not pursuing me. I'll sustain you by my grace. And when you're faithless, I will be faithful. That's what we have. And I know a lot of you feel weak. And I know a lot of you feel like I can't overcome these temptations. You know what? And God's saying, you know what? You weren't meant to. I did that. You didn't help me on the cross. You didn't help me bring Jesus back from the dead. I did that all by myself. And I will see this through to the end. So part of the message of Judges is actually that you rest. Rest in the work that he has begun in you. He will complete it, okay? And he will never let you go. That's what we need to see a lot of times here in Judges. So there's two types of gods. Will you follow the gods of this, that enslave you or we follow the one true God, the only God that will save you? The third point I want to give you as we wrap this up is that this. Forgetfulness leads us to fall away. Forgetfulness leads us to fall away. Did you notice in verse, chapter 2, verse 1 and 10, I'm going to read here real quick. Look at how God confronts them. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant to you. Why does he start there? Do they not know these things? Of course they know these things, but they're not thinking about these things that God has done in their past. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or remembered the mighty things he had done for Israel. Had this generation not known about the Passover, the Red Sea, and Jericho? They absolutely knew about it. But the word here to know in Hebrew means intimate knowledge, okay? It means that they are so familiar with these things that they are precious to them. Are they really recalling all of God's done in the past? Or they're just like, oh, those were some nice stories. That's what's going on here. And that's why he's asking. The question is, why would you be able to trust God with your eternal salvation and not trust him with the day-to-day stuff? A God you can trust with eternity is a God you can trust with your finances, a God that's paid for your sins is a God that you can trust with your emotional needs. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling hard. I'm hurt today. I'm worked up. You know, and a, a God that's truly overcome death is a God that you can trust with your future. So you need to think about these. And parents, I want you to know we need to teach these things to our kids. That's why we love teaching the Iwana's kids about Scripture and God's Word and the youth about the Scriptures because we've got to teach these things to our kids. They're so precious. In one generation, I just want you to see this, from parents to kids, one generation, they went from a people that saw God knock down the walls of Jericho to now not even knowing God at all. In one generation. So we've got to be able to show our kids what it looks like to, to really to learn the promises of God. So the question I want to ask is, do they see it in you? 
If you're modeling it for someone today, do they see it as a priority? Your, your walk with the Lord, are you opening the scriptures? How, do they see it in how you spend your money in the structure of your lives and how you use your time? Chapter 2, verse 4, I'm ending with this. I want you to know, when Israel saw the damage that they had caused themselves and their children, it says they wept. They wept over it. But evidently, they didn't repent. Repentance means that you're willing to make a change in your life. They were just sad over what they had done. So what does it look like for you today? Is there some things that you're saying, I can't do that, I can't, things you're sad about that you should have, I wish I would have done. Here's what, change your habits. Open the scriptures, spend more time praising the Lord, talking to him, pleading with him, uh, you know, talk to the Lord. Also get your family involved in the life of the church so it's not just a group of people that you see once in a while. It's, it's people that are intimately involved in your lives that really shape you and form you. And when you serve, you know what? I would be cautious about when you go away and you say, man, they want me to do it again. I have next month, they, they want two more hours. You know, the kids see that kind of attitude and how it's, it's playing out. So do they see that love for the Lord? And I want to encourage all of us that we resolve to obey God fully in all things. And instead of us, maybe today you're caught up in saying, you know what, I can't, I can't, I can't. And maybe you should be honest with the Lord. Say, God, I won't but I'm willing now. I want to make some changes to really trust you. And when you say belay, you say belay on. I'm ready to drop down into a trust of our saving arms of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that we can come to you. And Father, I pray that we would just understand all that is that you have for us. Father, that we would when we talk about just kind of tiptoeing through life and kind of making sure that we've got our bases covered and using you as kind of a little bit of a backup, Lord, we repent of that. Lord, would, would you cause our hearts to long for you and hunger for you? And would you change maybe even our habits and that we're willing to trust you wherever you call us and whatever you say and that we, what to give and what to do and how to minister and, and to be a light for Christ? I pray that we would just be willing to trust you because you're so faithful. And you will carry us and you'll strengthen us. And you've done more than enough for us already on the cross and giving us a Savior in Jesus Christ. We put our faith and trust in you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to stand up, uh, we're going to share the benediction. I want to encourage you at the end of the service. Um, a lot of times we have a few moments at the end of the service, and we do need to, our Wana's ministry, we stack up the chairs over here. So if you're able to help for a few moments afterwards, we stack these in stacks of six and kind of push them up. But also, if you have a few moments, get to know someone, greet someone. Uh, a lot of times in my past, we used to have like a three-minute rule where it's kind of like, well, I'm going to be intent to know someone that I don't know before and greet someone because someone might need that encouragement today. So you might spend some time fellowshipping with those around you this morning. Hear the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a blessed week.